<clears throat> so we're thinking about this um, Isaianic prophecy that Jesus... I'm a little bit busy at the minute, I'll be honest. Where's mummy gone? <laughs> there she is, she's colouring in. <coughs> That's a very good picture of Jamie. <coughs> the beard's a bit ginger, I'll be honest. Um, where were we? Yeah, so this Isaianic prophecy that Jesus claims of himself that we read from Luke's Gospel just there. And so um, I gather that you guys are kind of looking at the life of Jesus through the lens and structure of that Isaianic prophecy. And uh, this morning we're going to be thinking about uh, the bit where Jesus says that he has come to bring good news to the poor. And um, we're going to do that by meditating a bit on that famous kind of little sermonette of Jesus that we call the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. I want to do something a little bit controversial in looking at the Beatitudes by, seeing as we've started in Luke's Gospel, look at Luke's account of Beatitudes, which nobody usually does. They normally look at Matthew's version of it because it's a bit wordier. Um, And the reason I want to do that, mainly because Luke is a strong name and he sounds like somebody you should probably listen to, but also because Luke, in his gospel, has throughout the gospel, I think, actually, a very particular emphasis which helps us in what we're talking about today. So if you've got Bibles or apps or any other kind of um, way of looking at the passage, it comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26, and it says this, Luke chapter 6, 20 to 26. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For that is what their ancestors did to the prophets... But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. And woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. What's working marvellous. So if I was to say a sentence to you using some of the words up on the screen here, uh, we've got manifesto, election, campaign, policy pledge, party lead. What do you think I'd be talking about if I used that kind of language? Anybody want to shout it out? Politics, yeah. Uh, anyone to be more specific about that? Any particular aspect of politics or the political life that I might be talking about? A general election, yeah. So something along those lines, politics, general election, maybe a new leader. <coughs> and if there's one thing I want you to take away today, it's that this is probably what would have been in the minds of people when they read Luke's gospel and read the story of him speaking from the scroll of Isaiah, particularly the little bit that we're reading. Um, It would have, there's some language in it that's evocative of some of this terminology. So in the same way that if someone preached a sermon using this language in an allegorical way, I think that's partly how the readers would have reacted to this. <coughs> and the re- part, uh, one of the main reasons for that is a very important word in the mix of the little bit of that prophecy that we're looking at today. <coughs> so um, how many of us here have ever attended a church where the word gospel is used a lot? 
Anybody here attended a church where the word... Yep, yep, me too. I can put my hand up on that. And um, in certain cultures, people seem to be very uneasy about anything, any event, any charity, anything, unless it's got the word gospel absolutely plastered all over it in every value statement um, and and every event and everything. (coughs) And um, quite often in that kind of a church tradition where uh, the word gospel was used on everything... um, that word gospel is understood to mean a very small and specific set of doctrines in Christian theology. So usually uh, when people in those kind of traditions talk about the gospel, they'll be referring to theologies and aspects of the Christian life that relate mostly to sin, uh, to God's grace, to individual salvation, and potentially to eternal life in heaven. So if I was to paint a slightly unfair caricature for quite a lot of Christians to, pr- to preach the gospel, that's a phrase you've probably all heard before people use, preach the gospel. Um, for quite a lot of Christians, to preach the gospel means to tell people that they're evil and that God is really, really angry with them because they've been really naughty, um, but that if they choose to believe that God died for them, uh, which may look like praying some kind of special set prayer on a little card or something, that they'll then get to like, sort of spend some kind of disembodied eternity drinking chai lattes on a cloud or something like that. Like for a lot of people, when they say preach the gospel, slightly unfair caricature, but roughly that's what would come to people's minds from that word. Um, now, I don't know about your mates, but uh, obviously another, another way we use the word gospel is good news, because gospel is a transliteration of a, a Greek word. So... I don't know about your mates, but for my mates, nothing much about what I've just described feels like very good news. Um, and the whole thing is, is kind of built on some presuppositions, like that the person believes in some kind of deity, uh, that they accept certain moral certainties, and that they believe in some kind of disembodied afterlife after they die. And I'd go as far as to say that's like possibly like the worst news ever maybe um it really isn't very good news at all um really especially if means that on top of all of that you've like got to go to church every week and tithe and stuff like that that's just like rubbish news Uh, before you start shouting heretic and throwing stones at me i'll be clear by saying that personal salvation and some of that stuff very definitely is part of the gospel but um, it's definitely not the whole of the gospel and when you sort of extract it out of the gospel like that it just becomes not very good news at all. So in the passage that we read, and in many other passages in the New Testament, this word, uh, this Greek word evangelion is used in the text, or certain extractions of that word. And that's the word that, in depending on the translation of the Bible you're using, we either translate it good news or we translate it gospel. <clears throat> but this would have been a really, really familiar word to the Greek speakers of the New Testament era. And when I say, like, I mean to kind of everybody, not just like church people. It was a, a word in common usage. And um, the word's found in quite a lot of inscriptions which even predate the life of Christ um, and all the New Testament writings as well. And the word very commonly is used to refer to the Roman Caesars, interestingly. Um, so you, you see in various inscriptions over buildings or in dedications, um, I believe possibly even on some coins. I'm not 100% sure about that, so don't quote me on it. Uh, You will get this word, evangelion. 
And the interesting thing about it is that in the ancient world, they really didn't understand politics and religion or spirituality in such a separate way that we do, because that's almost like a, a foundational truth now of Western society, isn't it? That religion and politics should never be put together. But in the ancient world, there was almost no separation at all between those two things. <coughs> and a, a big part of the evidence that we see for this in ancient history is that there was a really powerful cult which arose in the Roman Empire where people actually worshipped the Caesars. So their kind of ultimate political leaders in their empire were worshipped. Um, and there is a bit of debate about how seriously the common people of Rome took this worship, whether they were like genuinely enthusiastic about it and believed in it, or whether they just kind of played along so that they didn't get like set on fire and stuff like that. Um, but it's definitely true that for some people, these Caesars, their leaders, were venerated as if they were gods. Um, and the kind of thinking around this was generally that um, they went through this thing called an apotheosis, which is a pretty cool word, uh, where they basically meant that they became truly divine when they died. So they kind of, at their death, they would enter into some spiritual reality and, and be a god amongst the other, bo the other gods of, uh, of the Roman belief. <coughs> uh, one of my favourite stories, there's so many awesome little anecdotes and stories that come out of um, Roman history, but Caesar Vespasian, who is one of the interesting characters of Rome, famously on his deathbed, uh, upon realising that this was his time, said possibly the best dying words of any person ever, and he said, oh dear, I think I'm becoming a god. <laughs> I, don't know, I find that really funny, maybe I've just got a sick sense of humour. <coughs> um, we know that one of the reasons behind the widespread persecution of Christians um, in the early church was also that they refused to engage in this worship of the Caesars. They categorically refused to be involved in that, and that was one of the reasons why the Christians were persecuted. In an environment where actually in the Roman Empire there was a lot of religious tolerance. So there was a huge amount of tolerance and there was a, a, a huge pantheon of all these gods and religions and Eastern mysticisms that were permitted but you, the one thing you really had to do was you had to worship the Caesars, and that was what the Christians refused to do. So the word evangelion, or good news, um, that we're reading, actually was very often used kind of as a sung worship or as a praise. Um, it was often used like at the coronation of a new Caesar. They would be like saying good news, but with that specific connotation of, like, this is really good news, that we've got this new political leader. And very often as well, when the Caesars were victorious in battle, people would kind of, to announce that victory, would run around in the streets of Rome shouting, Evangelion, Evangelion, you know, we've won, the Caesars have done it again. Um, probably didn't feel quite such good news to the countless people that were slaughtered and oppressed in the name of this kind of peace that was brought by the Roman Empire, but um, that, was how the, that was the spin they put on it, that it was good news for everybody. So um, placing the use of the word evangelion and then alongside a lot of the titles that are used of Jesus in the New Testament, quite often in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, which are closely related and written by the same author, everybody thinks. Um, a lot of these titles, you know, we, in our worship songs, we talk about Jesus as like King of Kings and Lord of Lords and stuff like that. These were all titles nicked from the worship of the Caesars. So these were, s were in common usage by the people to worship Caesar, to say, King of Kings, Caesar, Lord of Lords. And, and like the writers of the New Testament nicked these and used them of, used them of Jesus. Um, 
And a lot of scholars have come to the conclusion that based on this and some other stuff in the stories, <coughs> that uh, some of the New Testament writers were trying to set up this Jesus that they were talking about um, as a king in opposition to Caesar in some way, or as a king over a king over Caesar or a greater king than Caesar. Um, one of the traditional sayings of the early church, which they probably whispered in the back streets of, of the Roman Empire, was Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. That was a thing that they used to say. Because you have to remember, like, if you think of like the, the craziest degree of leader worship, maybe like some of the mad stuff that comes out of um, the North Korean leaders and the way they're almost kind of worshipped, or like the most ardent Donald Trump supporter that really sees them as the saviour of America. If you times that by like a hundred, that was the way that these Roman Caesars were set up. One of the accusations brought against the early Christians in the book of Acts uh, was as follows. So somebody said, uh, when the Christians arrived in town, these men who have turned the world upside down have now come here. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king named Jesus. It comes from Acts chapter 17. So rightly or wrongly, some of Christianity's early opponents interpreted the Christian teaching as they believe in another king. And of course, if you don't have a kind of disembodied concept of spirituality, they almost saw Christianity as like a pseudo-religious political movement um, in opposition to Rome. So now that my introductory preamble is out of the way, uh, we can get into today's passage. Um, so what on earth does it mean then that Jesus came to bring good news, this evangelion, to the poor? What does it mean that Jesus came to bring good news to the poor? Quite a few of the Caesars, to some extent, tried to stylize themselves as being good news for the poor, interestingly. Um, and they were well known for doing things like going through the streets, chucking out loaves of bread for the poor people to eat and they put on these wild crazy like circus celebrations with loads of like amazing entertainment um, all in the name of trying to get the poor common people on their side to love them um, and they really wanted to be loved by the people particularly the poorer people um, but really even kind of contemporary critics like um, the chap called Suetonius that not about a couple of hundred years after the emperors wrote a lot of really interesting stuff on them. And even, even way back then, they saw it was just a spectacle to try and distract people, to pacify people, to keep the poor people happy, basically, um, was, was what the Roman leaders were trying to do. So these kind of seemingly benevolent acts towards the poor by the Caesars really were just a thinly veiled attempt to pacify the masses. But when we read that um, masterwork sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, we can see that his good news, his evangelion, was specifically for the poor, it seems, and looks really quite different to the evangelion of the Caesars towards the poor. And if you kind of hit that point of switching off because it's Sunday morning this, uh, and wondering after a long history lesson, what on earth relevance this has to me, we'll get kind of into what this means for us now. Um, because I would suggest that the true gospel of Jesus, the true good news of Jesus, really is very good news. It's not crap news, like the small version of it that we talked about earlier. Um, and it's particularly good news for the poor. It's, it's particularly good news for the people who aren't really doing very well out of how things are going at the moment. 
Um, we've talked a lot about the good news bit, but also we do kind of need to ask the question, well, what do we mean by poor? When we talk about good news for the poor, what do we mean by poor? Um, in the more popular version of the Beatitudes that we see in Matthew's Gospel, um, it's, more of a f- it's interpreted more as a figurative way of interpreting the word poor. So in Matthew's version, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then all the capitalists rejoice because they can say, oh, well, a lot of rich people are really unhappy and sad and depressed and under loads of stress. So Jesus was talking to us as well, you know, because we're poor in spirit, even though we're materially very, very rich. Um, And that's often been used as a nice little get-out clause to kind of rip the guts out of a lot of the teaching of Jesus, that it's always interpreted figuratively. But um, Dr. Luke, the evangelist, was a very, very careful writer in the language that he used. So both the Gospel of Luke and Acts, um, you can see that, that Luke, the evangelist, who we most scholars accept is the person that wrote those two things under the influence of God, um, was very careful about the language and the wording of stuff that he used. And so as we read earlier, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, he cuts out the in-spirit bit and he just says, he just has Jesus saying, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And that sounds a little bit uncomfortable and political and not very equality-based, doesn't it? To like pronounce a blessing on an exclusive group of people, the poor. And also like, Blessed are the poor, yours is the kingdom of God. Like, poor people aren't supposed to earn, aren't supposed to run kingdoms, are they? Like, poor people would be rubbish at running kingdoms because, you know, they haven't worked hard and got a good education and whatever else that leads you to be in the seats of power. So it seems like Jesus is actually saying something a little bit ridiculous uh, by saying, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. One of my biggest... But can you read that? All right, yeah, you can. Good, it's nice big letters. One of my biggest problems with that kind of anemic version of the gospel, which I mentioned earlier, it's presented based on the assumption that if we tell that good news to our like mates in the country club or at the gym or in Starbucks or whatever, that once they've heard that good news, they'll just drop everything and come and follow Jesus because it seems like too good a deal to refuse. But the problem is that for those of us who are largely kind of doing okay out of a society that's built on privilege and power structures, the gospel of Jesus probably just doesn't actually sound all that attractive, really. Um, And actually, probably it doesn't really make all that much sense at all to people who don't have any kind of Christian basis in their thinking and their way of looking at the world. And that's most people now. Like, most people didn't go to church or Sunday school in this country now. Uh, We can't rely on people accepting those foundational truths. And before any of us start getting off on any kind of Guardian reading self-righteous kick about how, yeah, the gospel is ours, like, I would suggest that probably most of the people in this room, myself included, who've got a positive bank balance and an education, like, that includes us, that we're pretty much doing all right out of the status quo, aren't we? We're like, we're doing okay. It could be worse. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor, which is absolutely nuts because the poor categorically are not blessed, are they? Like, the poor are like the opposite of blessed. Um, For me personally, like, reading passages like this has taken a bit of a different meaning because I've seen a lot of people die in Luton as a direct result of their poverty. Um... And yet, Jesus is saying that these are the people that are blessed, which just really doesn't actually seem to make any sense at all. 
<clears throat> but Jesus qualifies this blessing that he pronounces um, by offering promises that go with it. So he says, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And this promised blessing comes in a kind of future tense. It's a blessing that is to come. It's, it's a promise that is to come in spite of the difficulty of the present, of the pain of the present. And I think the reason for this is Jesus is saying all this stuff pre-cross resurrection and everything else. Because Jesus is about to turn the whole world upside down. So he's like, you who are poor now, like, just wait because your time's going to come because I'm going to turn everything completely on its head. Um, my father-in-law, um, he's a bricklayer by trade like me, um, doesn't have much formal education, but um, he's a very well-read man, and uh, he finishes every sermon or Bible study that he preaches with some very good advice, which is, please don't take my word for it, go and look at the text yourself. Um, and that's something I would suggest is a good idea today. So I would say go and have a look at the stories of Jesus, like the four Gospels, just get right into them. Um, and see what it says about this, see how we can read the life of Jesus about this stuff. Has anybody else here been binge-watching Stranger Things lately? Good work, yeah, awesome. I won't give away any spoilers, but man, that last moment, oof, I was nearly crying. Um, has anybody here read one of the Gospels from start to finish in the last year? Probably about the same number of people as Stranger Things, good work. If, if you want a little bit of homework to go away with today, um, get like an old Bible or something, or a New Testament. You can get them in a lot of charity shops because no one wants them. Um, and go through the Gospel of Luke with a highlighter. And every time you come across a story in the Gospel of Luke where um, a poor, marginalised or excluded person kind of wins the story, just highlight it with your highlighter. And uh, that's a kind of approach to New Testament theology that probably wouldn't get you good marks in an essay, the kind of who wins the story. I call it Luke's who wins the story hermeneutics. Um, but you'd find if you did that, that actually most of Luke's gospel will be bright yellow by the time you're finished. Like so subtly in almost all the stories Luke tells, it's the outsider kind of wins the story, weirdly. Um, there's loads of examples of that, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Parable of the Great Banquet, Blind Bartimaeus, uh, the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. Like It's just all through Luke's Gospel, if you're looking for it. So having now tantalised you into a bit of a frenzy, I'm afraid I'm going to leave you with not much else in terms of interpretation of that. Um, and what we will do is spend a bit of time based on this information and this little history lesson to reflect and meditate on those words again. Um, this other king called Jesus that we're accused of, of worshipping and venerating, um, who calls into question all the kind of corrupt power games of the world, who taught us that to lead means actually to serve, which we see as the opposite of leading, who is promised to bring justice for the oppressed, um, he pronounces his blessing. He pronounces his blessing as follows. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, 
revile you, defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. So as we look at this little passage in the gospel, if you go away and go through Luke's account of the gospel, I would humbly suggest that if the gospel that we believe as Christians doesn't turn the world upside down, as those accusers of the early Christians suggested it does, if the gospel we believe doesn't turn the world upside down, if it doesn't challenge the injustice in the power structures of the world that oppress and capture God's children, if the gospel we believe doesn't kind of rattle the Caesars and the Pharaohs of this world a little bit and make them feel a bit uncomfortable, and if the gospel we believe doesn't call us as the people of God into some journey of exodus towards a promised land, I would humbly suggest that that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but it's a paltry, anemic, and more easily marketable travesty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God bless you today. As the early Christians said, Christ is king. Caesar is not. Donald Trump is not. The top 10 companies from the Fortune 500 are not. Kim Jong-un is not. Neither were Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, and uh, all the others right back to Nero, Vespasian, and Julius Caesar. Christ is king. And I'll give you a little Anglican bit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be forever. Amen.